Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 339 of the podcast. It's April 10th, 2019. Joining me today is Charles Protzman, author of a great number of lean healthcare books and other lean books in general for other industries. Today, we're talking about a book that he wrote for a broader audience. It's called The Basics Lean Implementation Model, Lean Tools to Drive Daily Innovation and Increased Profitability. Well, I first met Charlie over a decade ago, back when I worked for Johnson & Johnson's Valuemetric Services Consulting Group, and he was a big influence on our team and our methodology. I'm glad to finally have him here on the podcast to discuss things including how he navigates the differences between manufacturing and healthcare settings and why he says he looks forward to questions about patients not being cars. We'll also talk about his BASICS model. It's an acronym. The BASICS model is baseline, assess, analyze, suggest solutions, implementation, check, and sustain. We also talk about the power of direct workplace observation, something that I wrote about in my book, Lean Hospitals, and I discussed with the healthcare CEO, Vance Jackson, back in episode 337. So if you'd like to learn more about Charlie and his work and his books, you can find links by going to leanblog.org slash 339. Charlie, hi. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Great, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, voice is hanging in there after having some uh, illness here recently. So um, regular listeners might think I sound a little off, but I think we'll have a good discussion uh, here here today anyway. So, you know, Charlie, um, can, I always like to let guests introduce themselves and, you know, if you can tell a little bit about your career arc and background and, and then inevitably that that sort of weaves into a question about how did you first learn about lean? So I guess back when, when we first did lean, I would say it was back around 1985, but of course it wasn't called lean. Then there wasn't a, a, a book out then the lean thinking book wasn't there, but uh, we were working on, uh, process improvement went back when I was at Bendix Communications, uh, which today is uh, called Honeywell. And we, we were introduced to a video called Paradigms by Joel Barker, or the business of paradigms. And not too much later, a book came out called The Machine That Changed the World. And I remember when The Machine That Changed the World came out, uh, we were working on a, a project to improve our, our uh, PC card assembly area at the time with our general manager. Uh, and I called my uh, director of operations, Denny O'Neill. I was uh, in materials at the time. And I said, Denny, you got to read this book. This is what we've been looking for. And that was really our introduction into today what you would call lean and the business of paradigms really provided the the change side of it so you know as you know there there's really two pieces there's the the people side and the tool side or the task side and the business of paradigms fed that people piece and the machine that changed the world was really the scientific management or the the tools piece and those two things together is really what launched me down this path, you know, back at that point. So, so I always look back to there is when we first got into lean and then there are, are just a lot of stories that, that go around that electronics area that we started working with at Bendix. And, uh, we became a model site for Honeywell and even Harley Davidson came in to benchmark us for self-directed teams. So, uh, it, that was where our journey started. Yeah. I mean, thinking back to that time, what were the main business arguments or, or pressures or drivers for trying a different way? Well, we just couldn't ship on time. We, we couldn't, we built, we built 
we built communication systems for NSA. We also built diffusers for the Patriot missile. And we just, we were building the, we were actually manufacturing the circuit cards. And then we were putting them in, assembling them into systems, and then we would ship. And we were doing, you know, traditional batch production. We had a lot of expensive equipment that would put the, uh, the parts into the boards automatically. And when we would get eight or 10 weeks behind on delivery, then he would say, hey, why don't we set up a slide line? And we would say, well, what's a slide line? And he said, well, you know, we put two rails up and we, we just lay out all the parts in the order that they go <laughs> in the boards. And then we have people just put the parts into the boards and we, we basically process the boards one piece flow. And we're like, okay, so we set up the line. We, the lines ran great. We had less errors than we had with the machines, you know, after they came out of the solder, flow solder machine and life was good. We would catch up to the schedule within three or four weeks. And then we would go back to the machines Oh no! because, you know, they weren't depreciated yet. They weren't, they were still paying for them. And, and of course, we all know batch is much more efficient, right? Or at least that's the way they think. So, you know, uh, six months, eight months would go by and we'd get behind again. And then he would say, hey, why don't we set up a slide line? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I mean, it goes to show that old habits are hard to break. I mean, you know, cost accounting rules and pressures. And I mean, it really comes down to just the way we've always done it being a really powerful force, right? Is that, is that where... I'm not familiar with the Joel Barker book, but did it address some of that of, of how to get people past the way we've always done it? Yeah. Yes. The, the Joel, the Joel Barker video is one that I show in all my training classes. It's actually one of the first things I show and it really does help you change, change your mindset or at least realize that we all get into paradigms and we don't realize it. And the, the only problem with that video is, you know, two or three years later, it's already outdated with the examples that he shows. So uh, it's actually a point. It would be great if Joel could do another one. But, yeah. uh, well, I, I see the book. I see the book on Amazon. And I remember back and we'll, we'll talk a little more about this. But when I first met you, when I was working at J&J, &J, I, I do remember now you're jogging my memory. I, I do remember seeing um, so, at least some of that paradigms video. It really makes people think, and we've actually been, I've been studying why people resist change as, as Barker has for, for the last, you know, 30 years. And one of the things I've learned that's come out in some of the recent literature is, is really the way our brains function. And it's, 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 there's something called the crocodile brain, which is, uh, which really runs all your motor functions in your body and that type thing. And the crocodile brain is always trying to keep you from taking on additional work or things that you perceive as additional work. And batching is a paradigm. And it, my experience is, uh, and I honestly believe that we're all literally born, it, it's like in our DNA, thinking that batch is the most efficient and the best way to go. And that's just always fighting you when you're doing lean. So the and it's fighting you after you do lean because our, our, our brains are just programmed to think batching. Is and, and, and I can prove that because you just don't walk into companies and see one piece low, right? You always see bat. Uh, so, and people will literally fight to keep that batching paradigm. I mean, it's like a baby holding onto a blanket. They don't want to let it go and they will fight you to keep it. So it's, it's a, the training and everything has to be designed to get them to first realize they're in that paradigm. And then you've got to prove that, that, that one piece flow is better. And uh, that's when the light bulb goes on. And that's when, when we say people get it, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you mentioned Womack and, you know, he's one of the co-authors of Lean Thinking. And I forget if it's in that book or if it's just a story he's told of having his, um, a daughter helping with some sort of mailing and I forget how old she was, but she was a child and 
like she very naturally gravitated toward, well, we're going to fold all the papers first and then stuff all the envelopes. And then, so yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's something, I try to think what evolutionary trait that is that made batching um, a good survival tactic back in the day, but that, that's not the best way to do things anymore. Right. So um, let, let's let's talk about um, healthcare because you know, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, and, and for the listeners, you know, I first met Charlie, and it was actually influenced uh, quite a bit when I joined the Volumetric Services team at Johnson and Johnson in 2005. Um, we you know we got training from Charlie, and a lot of the model we were using with clients was similar um, you know, to, to this basics model that, that Charlie writes about in his book. So, you know, we'll, we'll be able to delve into that in more detail here, Charlie, but I'm, you know, I'm curious just to hear a little bit more about your history. When did you first have the opportunity to work in healthcare? So I, I, I first started working in healthcare, I think it was back, I think it was back in 2002 or 2003. And it was actually with Value Metrics and Jim Ellis. And they were doing a value stream map uh, back when value stream mapping really first came out, the Learning to See book. Um, and uh, I actually volunteered to go work with them for free just so I could learn that tool. And uh, we, we did a high-level value stream map for the entire Ohio Health uh, Organization uh, or high system in uh in riverside and then uh in columbus and then we uh we broke the level we broke the map down to different areas emergency room surgery that type thing and uh as i recall it was about a two-week process and it, it was very successful in in highlighting the waste uh and and being able to give the hospital executives a a picture of what their organization was like and how it was functioning. So the I mean the beauty of the value stream map tool, which which you know we use in, in all the hospitals, is that it'll let you see the system or the systems that are at work. And you can't see those just looking around uh the hospital areas. So uh so that was really my introduction into healthcare and back then, as you know, Valumetrics was really more into the lab side. So uh, Ohio Health wanted to do their surgery department. So Valumetrics approached me and said, would you be interested in, in working with them on surgery? And I said, you know, I don't know anything about hospitals. I've been in manufacturing my whole life. I, I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, can I think about it? And, and I thought about it for a couple of weeks. And I said, well... You know, it can't hurt me. Let's take a shot at it. And uh, that's when I really started learning about hospital systems. So uh, that was my introduction really into working uh, with surgery. And then uh, it was very successful. We were actually able to get, we were working with one of the surgeons um, in particular, and we were able to get him one or two extra cases a day in the same time frame that he had before so he was absolutely thrilled with the process and, and we ended up saving them um millions of dollars and it wasn't just me it was uh you know other people in the metrics organization as well that that were working with them so uh then then we moved on to florida hospital and started working on their emergency room in uh, altamont and that's that's where we really developed the uh, the groundbreaking emergency room process that we came up with that we call, for, for lack of a better word right now, we call lean care tracks. Um, and uh, we never really came up with a name for that model, which is something that, that looking back, I think we should have. But at the time, um, they didn't want to protect the model because we actually thought about running it up through the, the legal side, but they decided that they wanted it out there for, for everyone to use. So that's when, you know, that's when I wrote the book, um, Leveraging Lean in Healthcare. And, and I wrote it for two reasons. One was to show how much improvement can be made in hospitals. And the other one is to show that 
it can be done in every area of the hospital. Because, you know, it, one of the things you hear is, oh, well, that works for the emergency room, but that won't work for... <laughs> right. Yeah, we're different. Um, that would even happen, I'm sure you heard it, within labs, you would do some work in uh, the core lab of chemistry, hematology, uh, urinalysis, and then people in um, histology and anatomic pathology would say, oh, but no, 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 oh, we're, we're, we're different. <laughs> right, Exactly. And, and it's not like we haven't had in manufacturing as well, right? Yeah. So, so you know, and, and again, I'm sure you've heard this, and this has become a, a question I ask a lot of guests. Um, I'm sure you've heard people in healthcare say things like, you know, obvious, true, factual statements that, oh, well, you know, the hospital is not a factory, and, and well, you know, patients aren't cars. Um, when, when somebody throws that at you, um, how, how, how do you... How, how do you generally respond where, you know, if somebody's trying to throw that up somehow as a reason why lean wouldn't be applicable? So, so I guess one of my early lessons on was, uh, first off, I, I, I always look forward to that comment. And really now I just try to beat them to the punch, right? So now I, I tell them, you know, but patients aren't cars. So, you know, you have to, you have to apply the model a little differently, right? So it's the same way in, in manufacturing where people say, oh, you just want us to be robots. And I'm like, yeah, it's batching that makes you robots. It's not lean. So, uh, you know, when you do one job over, over and over 200, 300, 400 times or a thousand times, that's, you know, that, that's batching, that's a robot. So as far as cars go, I tell them we actually, you know, obviously patients on cars and we we changed our value added definition as a result of that. So in manufacturing, you know, was the value added is uh, customer cares, physical change done right the first time, which actually comes from that a, a uh, time is the next dimension of quality video. And for healthcare, we changed it. So we say it's it's customer cares, and then physical any physical or emotional change for the better, right? For the patient. So a nurse's touch is value added, right? And done right the first time. So uh, it, it, it's always a fun discussion because that takes you down to what's value added and what's non-value added. And, and those end up being really fun discussions in hospitals uh, as well as in manufacturing. So that that's generally how I respond is I just agree with them. Of course, patients on cars. And back, you know, back in the day, you remember when we first started implementing this stuff, um, you couldn't say the word assembly line in a hospital. You get kicked out. Um, but today, today things have changed. A lot of hospitals are actually looking to hire uh, manufacturing IEs and, and, and manufacturing lean guys because they're not in their paradigms. So... I always thought that was a big advantage for me that I that I didn't grow up in the hospital world or healthcare world. I, I was able to see things, you know, that that they couldn't. That that the old boiled frog type thing. Um, I always considered that an advantage. Yeah. Well, there, there's there's all sorts of examples and situations where outside perspectives and fresh eyes are, are helpful, even if it's fresh eyes from a different department within the hospital, right? Um, kind of helping one department get past the way they've always done it. And, you know, because they don't have context of the full value stream. Uh, I, I agree with you that, you know, when somebody brings up that, that issue of, you know, patients are not cars, I, I think that's something to sort of lean into and continue the discussion let's let's take that let's take that further and say you're right patients oh this this is way more important than making cars that's all the more reason to make sure we're doing the right work at the right place at the right time without hurting people um there, there there's there's more arguments to um apply lean than there are to say like oh it doesn't apply it's it's a matter of like you said how how do we how do we adapt it how do we maximize the, the the outcomes and the effect of what we're trying to do as a healthcare organization, right? Yeah, I, and I also agree with hospitals when they tell me we're not making cars because I say you're you're not making cars. 
you guys actually are repairing cars. <laughs> you know, you're repairing. Yeah. Well, you're more you're more the repair model than actually mm-hmm. manufacturing the car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the book, um, the Basics Lean Implementation Model. Um, I'm curious, what led to writing this book compared to the other books you've written? Who's, who's the target audience for this book? Well, it's a really good question. So, so um, this model goes back to, there are several models out there. And, and I've broken them down in, and these models, just to back up for a second, really are looking at how do you implement lean? How do you implement one piece flow? And I want to put it in the context of when you're going from a pure batch environment to trying to go to a lean or a flow type environment. And and that's whether it's a hospital, manufacturing, government, uh, or service industry like banking or insurance. And anything that is a process can be improved. And, and that's one of the things I learned in healthcare. When I started in healthcare, there weren't any books on healthcare. Nobody was really doing this stuff in healthcare back when we were doing it, right? So the only thing you had to fall back on were the principles, the lean principles. So when I look at the principles, I would go into the hospital and say, how do I, how do I make this thing flow? And I would challenge the teams. Like when we did the emergency room, I challenged the team. I, I sent them home one night and said, you know, how, if you really want to take care of patients and you want to treat patients in a safe environment and, and you want them to leave, you know, without any, you don't want them to pick up anything while they're in the hospital, right? The nosocomial infections, all those type things. But what kind of model would you set up to get a patient in and out so that they said, oh, well, we have fast track. And I said, yeah, but fast track is only for those fours and fives. You know, it's only for the, the, the earaches and the toothaches. And the people that have the stomach aches watch those people go by. And then they watch the, the really sick people go by. And then they're stuck. So I said, how do you make everybody fast track, right? And I challenged them with how, how do we set up one piece flow for patients? And um, the team came back and, and said, we, we have an idea. We think we know how to do this. And it, it changed from a room-based model, um, which is where the patient goes to the room and then the doctor comes to the patient, to a model where we actually move the patient through the process, just like assembly line. But we couldn't say that word or call it that word. And we broke probably about 30 paradigms setting up that model. But, you know, in the end, patients like it better. And, and I can actually guarantee hospitals, if you put in this lean care track model, you're left without being seen will be le- less than 1% when we're done. I mean, you can actually guarantee things once you set up this flow process. So um, I, I diverted a little bit, but there, there's basically four, four models out there as I see it. And the first one, and these are all you still use today. The first one is what I call trial and error, which is where the consultants just come in and try stuff. <laughs> um, there's there's one called Demand Flow Technology, which goes back to a book called Quantum Leap by John Costanza. And uh, there's another model called Point Kaizans or Kaizen events, the traditional five-day events that about 50% the same. And then there's what we call this basics model. And the basics model was first, I would say, first introduced us by another consultant called Mark Jamrog, who was really my sensei, and I know he worked with value metrics as well. And the model is really based on uh, what we call the Green Shingo book, which is uh, the Toyota production system from an industrial engineering point of view. And the, the basics model is, is a very structured approach uh, to implementing, to converting from batch to one piece flow. And the, the secret, the real secret to the model <clears throat> is the idea of that you need to separate the product from the operator 
or in the hospital world, the patient from the nurses because they both take, they're doing different things and they take different paths. So there are things I spent, I spent years asking myself, why, why did Shingo separate these? And, and Shingo actually, Shigeo Shingo actually separated these at a conference that he did, industrial engineering conference. And Gilbreth had known about this, you know, back in the early 1900s. It wasn't new, but Shingo was the first one to realize that, that processes are really a network of operations. And the product goes one way and the operators come in the other. So the, the, the basics model really follows that approach. We, we, we do the value stream mapping to see the system because systems thinking is incredibly important in all of this, especially in hospitals. Because what we learned in the hospitals was the systems are just fundamentally broken. And when you figure it out for one hospital, you pretty much figured it out for the others. Not that it's a cookie cutter solution because all hospitals are different, but but the emergency room process works pretty much the same whether you're 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 out after a you know a devastating um, natural catastrophe or or uh, a patient just walks into the ER. So the the I had a doctor tell me that he said you know it's it's the same process no matter what at everywhere. So. I, the the basic model is really just a more structured approach, and it actually is is similar to the DFT model. Um, the the big difference is that it has a different layout approach. The the DFT model is was more the Dell approach back in the day, where you had a line coming down and with uh, feeders coming in. You know, where people would build the parts of the PCs and they'd put it down the central line and then the next person would pick it up and work on it, et cetera. Um, so the, the basics model really has a different approach on the layouts than DFT. So the, I first started, I, I first started with basics back in putting this model together back in 2004, Mark went on to call his a 14 step model. Um, the, the way that he approached it. And, and we approached it similar, just a couple of, with some nuances and differences. But the, the basics model really stands for baseline, analyze, suggest solutions, implement, check, and sustain. So like all process improvement models, they're all based on PDSA, Plan, Do, Study, Act, or PDCA, which the Japanese changed it to. And um, you know the the baseline analyze suggest solutions as part of planning implementing is due and then check and sustain act. But we found that this model is much more it's much easier for people to identify with, um, and the lean tools fit it as well as the six sigma tools fit it very very nicely. Whereas um, we've used Demaic with lean, but uh, and and I know people will argue with me over this, but uh, the lean tools overlap a lot of the Demaic. Um, when you separate out Demaic, the lean tools kind of overlap them. In this model, they don't overlap, so everything really fits. But it but again, it's a structured approach, and there are things that you get when you follow the product. For instance, oven time, because you're not going to stand there and watch the oven the whole time. The parts there. Um, the operator that's loading and unloading the oven. And what I learned over the years is that really each piece of this product, the operator and changeover or setup give you different pieces of lean. And that's really kind of the secret behind the model. And my experience with this model, and, and you know this as well, is if you follow this model and I don't care what process you're working on, whether it's healthcare, manufacturing, government, transactional processes, insurance, banking, it always works. I've never had it not work. And, and you know, the question you get in whenever you, you get, whenever you go to consult with somebody is, well, have you done this exact process before? <laughs> like we talked Right. Right. This exact process. And most of the time I say no, but I'm really looking forward to working on it. <laughs> right. If, if you follow this model, it always works. And I have followed this model uh, 
you know, for 25, 30 years now, and I've never had it not work. Now, there's a people part to go with it, right? Um, and, and that's built into the model. So I always say it's 50-50, 50 people, 50% tools. And, and those tools are built into this model, as well as there are all what I call the TQ total quality tools, checklists, Parader charts, things like that. Um, and the other secret behind the model is videoing. With all these other approaches is they would video, you know, TBM and Shingejitsu, which were really behind the point Kaizen events, they would videotape changeovers, but they never would videotape anything else. It was always go and do, go see, go do. Even when I went to Japan with Shingejitsu, when we were in Itachi, we were working in a circuit board factory, they wouldn't let us video. And and the interesting part about that trip, you know, TBM and Shingejitsu preached that their approach was a ready, fire, aim approach, right? Just go do it. Don't worry about anything else. Just do it. If it, if it fails, it fails. You just recover. And the, the basics approach is a ready, aim, fire approach. So we study, we study the process. We don't study it to death. It's not analysis paralysis. But we video the product. We video the operators, which gives you a great forum to get buy-in from the operators because they're watching the video with you along with the supervisor. And when you get ideas on how to improve, they're now part of those ideas. So your resistance to change immediately drops significantly and your chances of sustaining go up. And our experience with this basics model, and I think you'd probably agree, is about 80 to 90% of these sustained compared to high point Kaizen events, which I would say maybe 40 or 50% sustained. Yeah. I just wanted to share a reflection on that because, you know, from using this model at Johnson and Johnson, um, this, this, this model, it, I know you, you don't call it this. I wouldn't necessarily call it this, but it's like a mega Kaizen event. It's more than a week. It's, multiple weeks, if not multiple months. And I always thought one of the keys to success, or if not the key to success, it's not that someone's coming in as the outside expert to fix it. You're engaging a full-time dedicated team of the people from the actual workplace and that you're teaching and coaching them to figure it out, which I think is what you're saying leads to the sustainment, right? Yeah, and, and, and like you said, it's longer, and the reason it's longer is because we're actually attacking the entire process. So in a Point Kaizen event, if you schedule a Point Kaizen event for three days or five days or one day, how, however long, much time you dedicate, you can only hit a certain percentage of the process. So then you're still going to be batching in and batching out. Um, we, we've done implementations where lines were hit by seven or eight Point Kaizen events over the course of three years. And then after a six-week basic implementation, we far exceeded the results that they, any results that they got over those three years because you're looking at the entire process, not just a piece of the process. Can you actually have time to go through and get the standard work and document it and get it right? And whereas Kaizen events, you're normally pressed for time. The standard work ends up on the 30-day list that never gets done. So the, the, interesting, the other interesting question you asked me, which was, why did I write the book on it? And it was interesting because I, I wrote another book called The Lean Practitioner Field Book, and, which is really an, more of an encyclopedia on lean, I think. <laughs> um, but it was a collection really of all of my life experiences along with five other authors and, and um, probably 20 or 30 uh, co-authors of people that also shared their experiences with us. And when I submitted that for the Shingo prize, some of the feedback that I got back was, well, what's this basics model you talk about? Where did that come from? Who came up with that? Um, so I, I took the Shingo feedback to heart and, um, you know, they really didn't understand the book because the, the flow of that book was set up along the lines of the basics model. That, that's, that's how I set up the book to flow. But at the time they didn't have a reference point for that. So, 
Um, so I, I wrote the book based on that feedback. And uh, I wanted to document the fact that that this model was out there. Um, we spent years really trying to come up with a name for it, but basics seemed to fit. And I first started, like I said, I first started playing around with that around 2004 and um, have been using it ever since. And I have several companies now that have implemented this and they call it the basics model um, when they report out you know, on their implementations and things like that. It's known that model in their company. So um, that's why I, I wrote the book and, and just to get it out there. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of times people say, well, aren't you afraid that you're, you're giving away the secret sauce or the, the recipe? And I'm like, yeah, but, but I'm happy to do that because this model works and it sustains if you do it right. And, and, um, Today, you know, the, the operators, in my opinion, just really have a lack of respect, and I, I think they get mistreated, and not unintentionally, but by the fact that we force them, you know, we force them into the batching paradigm, which we all think is more efficient. But in the long run, it you're not helping your operators at all. So Lean is totally focused on how do we make that operator's job as easy and safe as possible and and a high quality product and and today a lot of our focus is more on safety and quality than it is on taking labor out you know as it was in the past because there just isn't that much labor left in the products and that's why following the product which we call the tips process which is transport inspect process store is so important because the the tips process following the product is your material flow and that is your velocity of how fast you can get things in and out of your factory. And it's it's the same as following the patient through the emergency room, right? How do you get nobody wants to spend the day in the emergency room, at least nobody I know of. Mm, no. P- people want to get in, they want to get out. And if they see progress being made, they're happy. And and what I tell people, this goes back to your patients aren't cars comment. Mm-hmm. I actually use this in reverse because what I tell factories is what would your parts be saying if they were patients <laughs> and they could talk? You know, it's like, why do you have me sitting on this shelf for a year? Why have I had a birthday <laughs> sitting on this shelf or multiple birthdays? So I, I tell companies, you know, we want fresh parts. We want parts that have only been there a day, not not these old, old stale, you know, parts that have been sitting on the shelf for years. So uh, a little different paradigm. Yeah. Um, so I want to come back and, and talk more about the, the observation and, and videotaping, but you, you talk about um, excess staff and, you know, I think, you know, the reality is in a lot of workplaces, you, you do um, this analysis and, and you convert from batch to flow and you learn that, boy, you know, we've got a lot of excess capacity in the organization and, ho- and hopefully you can grow and redeploy people, utilize people in a different way. Um, you, you talk about this in the book and we both, um, you know, believe it strongly, but can you talk more about why it's important that if you, when you do identify excess staff, why is it important that they not be laid off as the result of lean improvements? Well, it's a really good question. And, and I've had, I've had many a discussion and even fights over this thing, this point. Um, the, the whole idea of, the whole idea behind lean is, like I said before, is, is it's all focused on the operator and how do we make the operator's job easier. And if, if they know that you're going to lay them off when you make an improvement, people will not help you identify the waste or, or eliminate their job. Um, and, and it really becomes that simple. If, if it becomes if it becomes a, 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 a head type thing or, or, you know, just counting heads type thing, people will, people will only help you to the point that they're forced to help you. And they'll start seeing all those things. You know, I, I, you, I know you've had this experience as well, but the guy pulls this little notebook out of his pocket and he's got every single product in there. And what the special thing is that he does for that product. 
but it's not documented anywhere. And, and they won't give you that if they know that you're going to lay them off. They will do everything they can to protect their job. And, and we've done this with, you know, we've implemented this with union shops and non-union shops, you know, alike. Um, and, and union shops are great. I, I've never had a problem implementing this in the union. It's more the union management that you struggle with than, than the people. But um, people just won't help you if, if, if lean becomes a cost-cutting program. Lean is about cost reduction, not cost-cutting. And, you know, we have a slide on that. And um, cost reduction is taking the waste out of the process. Where cost cutting is, you know, everybody has to bring in their own pencil. Um, so um, it, if you really want to get people's buy-in and make it a successful program, it, it can't be about cutting heads. Now, I, I do tell companies, you know, um, if you end up in a business condition and you have to lay people off, that's a different story. Right. Um, but that in, I remember the days when that was also considered bad management. You know, today it's kind of taught as an MBA school thing. Um, but, uh, you know, to Toyota doesn't lay people off with one exception I found in, in Australia. Um, well, and, they, and they, basically the entire auto industry left Australia. I, I talked to somebody about that in episode 334 of the podcast, one of the managers who helped shut everything down, but in a respectful way, they invested in, in career development opportunities uh, for, for people and went about that. And I think right. in a very different way than other companies would have. Right. We had something similar here in Baltimore with a company I worked with and they ended up shutting down the Baltimore plant because they got that much more efficient with their other plants. They actually ended up shutting down two plants, but every employee, Every employee was offered a, a position at one of the other plants. And, and then again, if, if they didn't take it, they were offered career counseling and, and all those type things. So um, it, to me, it was done in that spirit of, of respect for people. And, and I think that's, that's really important. But really, it's not about I, – I, I actually make most of my companies agree before I even work with them that people will not be laid off as a result of the improvements that we make. Um, and I've, I even have presidents that have sent letters out to all their employees telling them that before we started working on the projects. Right. Well, that, that was a hard set rule at Valumetric Services within – uh, within Johnson and Johnson is that uh, people could not be laid off. So uh, sometimes people would be redeployed to an internal process improvement team based on their experience on that, that first project. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, wow, I love doing this type of work. I'd like to go help other departments. And um, there's, there's a lot of compelling reasons for, for doing that. Not because it's nice, but arguably it's, it's just good business. Um, now, the, the other Toyota exception is, um, you know, temporary contract labor. Um, and, and, you know, there's a different expectation set. And sometimes Toyota gets criticized. Like, oh, well, you use a hyper, you use this flex staff, uh, temporary labor. But, you know, I, you know, people know it's temporary. But when people are permanent, boy, that really, that means, that really means permanent. Right. T totally. And, and we push that model you know, wherever we can in the U.S. is is use the temporary, if you have high fluctuations or seasonality, things that you're dealing with, um, look at that temporary model. But, but I, I believe uh, Toyota actually pays them a higher hourly rate, but they don't get all the benefits. But, but they are investing in that part-time workforce where uh, they're given all the training, they have access to all the exercise facilities that they have to, go through and, and all those type things. Um, so they don't have to retrain them every time when they come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk more about this idea of um, workplace observation, separating the patient and the operator. You know, you talked earlier about using value stream mapping to take a look at the high level. And, and sometimes I see people doing, what they call value stream maps. And it's like, oh, that's really a departmental process map where I think you and I agree value stream mapping really looks at the big picture 
And then you can dive in and, and look at the detail where, you know, from, from your influence and the way we did things at J&J, you know, there, there's an entire chapter in my book, Lean Hospitals, about the style of observation, using videotape, allowing people to analyze their own work. You know, I, I, I thanked you in the uh, introduction and, and credits for the book. Um, so I know this is powerful, but it's something a lot of people don't do. And I, I appreciate your influence on this. So can you, can you talk more about why these two types of detailed process observation are so powerful? So this is, uh, I think, uh, I forget who to credit for this, but, but there was someone that said the video, the video camera was the greatest industrial engineering tool ever invented. (laughs) And that goes back to Frank Gilbert when he actually videoed the tonsillectomies on his kids. Um, so the, the, this tool, this tool has been around forever. My experience with this is most companies with, with most of the, the lean consultants that they're working with, um, have been taught over the years to use the lean observation form that, I, I, we were taught by Shingetsu and, and again, their American side, which was TVM. And you can go out on the floor with a Kaizen observation sheet. You can stand over the shoulder of the operator. You can write down all the steps that the operator is doing, at least to the, to the extent that you can catch them with your eye, right? While you're trying to write, you're, you're really multitasking, which doesn't work either. But you write down the steps and you write down the times. And that approach actually is much more similar to what the process that Frederick Taylor used versus the process that Gilbert used. Frederick Taylor would stand over the operators, he would watch their jobs, and then he would say, okay, Mr. Operator, I'm going to make you a first-class man, and here's what you need to do that. And they would tell the operator what to do. Gilbert's approach was different. Gilbert's approach was video the operator review the videos, and um, and then make improvements. And he broke broke down the videos into what he called Thurblakes, which was Gilbert mm-hmm. spelled backwards, <laughs> and came up with 18 fundamental motions for the operators. So he used something called motion study. Taylor used something called time study. My experience with the basics approach is our approach is 90% Gilbert, 10% Taylor. Um, when you're using an approach which, you know, I always say you can, when you're working with operators, you can do it to them or you can do it with them. The video allows you to do it with them versus to them. When you're doing a lean observation sheet, you're doing it to them. You're not doing it with them. Now, I know people will argument, argue with me over this and the subtleties of this. Oh, yeah, we get the operator involved after we write the sheet down <laughs> on the sheet, right? But what happens? You, you tell the operator, okay, you did this and then you did this. And the operator says, well, wait a minute, I didn't do that. Well, yes, you did. I wrote it down on my sheet. Well, I didn't do that. And, and then it turns into a big argument. Now you're doing it to them. When you watch the videotape now, it's a different story. So now you say, you watch the operator and you write the steps down. You said, okay, you did step one, you did step two. And the operator says, well, I didn't do that. And you say, well, wait a minute, let's go back and look at it again on the video. Oh, I guess I did do that. I didn't realize I did that. So it, it turns into an aha moment for them. So, so it's, it's, it's the idea of, of, one, it gives you a way to document the steps. The, the, it gets the operators involved in the process, which is huge from when you're talking about the people piece or the resistance to change. Um, and the other part is you will see things on a video and I, and I know you'll identify with this that you will never see, you will never see standing and watch, just watching the operation. And there are things that might happen that you'll pick up on the video that don't happen all the time. And, and you'll hear people say, Oh, well, you know, that never happens. But my experience is if you catch it on the video, it happens a lot more than you think. Um, and those are things that you generally miss with the key observation sheet. And, and for sure, if you're going to do a 10-cycle analysis, it's much easier to do from the video than it is just standing over and watching them. So that that's my view on videoing. And 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 
you're right. People, people will resist. It's funny. The first thing I always do when I go into a company is I start the video. And my question to them is, so what did you do the last month that I wasn't here? How many videos did you do? Oh, we didn't do any. Well, why not? <laughs> so um, we've actually started to build that in the, to something we call a rapid improvement program um, where, where we will, we will do rapid improvements off the videos with the operators. And then we'll have the operators make a video and, sh and talk about what they did before and after. And, and it's really fun and the operators like it and, and they get involved. And then we'll, we'll play that, those videos over the, you know, the, the company cafeteria or in a monitor or somewhere. And uh, for instance, in China, we set up a WeChat group for, for that, where people just share improvements on WeChat. So, uh, so it's, 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 it's fun and, and it's, it makes the process fun and, and it gives you, it just gives you a huge step up when you talk about analyzing the steps and then coming up later with standard work. And the other piece that we do is once you come up with what the standard work should be, we create a video of the best operator doing that job. Um, and we call it the golden video. And the golden video is we then use that for training new operators when, when we're doing TWI. We, we built that in as part of our training process. And we'll train the new operators on the standard work and the video before they ever get to the floor. And, and then once they get to the floor, we can review the videos similar to if, if you've ever played, you know, if you play golf and you've ever had an instructor analyze your swing, right, on video. Um, we play the before. We play their, their video versus the golden video side by side, and we talk about where the differences are. And then occasionally you pick up improvements, you know, from that, and then we change the video. So, uh, so it's it's really a it, it's part of the part of the basics process. Yeah, and like you were saying, I mean, this this can all be done in a respectful, collaborative, engaging way. You know, the old criticism of um, you know, kind of the whether the whether the term is fair or not, the tailorist approach of the efficiency expert telling people how to do their job—that's not what this is, as, as you explained so well. Um, allowing people, you know, I've heard it described as an out-of-body experience when somebody is able to sort of step back and watch the way they work, and they start catching things like, "Well, wait, wait, did I really do that? Why did I do that?" And it, it helps create awareness for the things that people have just gotten used to. Um, I think is one of the huge benefits. Um, you know, it helps to ask people, what do you think we could do to improve the process? But there's this whole other layer that can only be uncovered through observation. Yeah. And, and, and even taking that a step further, that, that whole, even other layer that can only picked up on observation with videos. And, and that's what I call the hidden waste that you'll, you just see waste that you would never see. Like I said before, you just never see it just standing there watching it. And in some cases, if non-proprietary processes, we have the operators take uh, the video home and they show their families what they do and they love that. Uh, so I had a guy the other day well, when I was in Poland, this was uh, actually a couple months ago, and um, this guy is a phenomenal welder, and uh, they were trying to put in a, a welding machine, and his welds were actually better than the welding machine. But uh, he was a. We gave him the video to take home, and he was so proud, you know, to take this video home and show his family what what he does and how good a job he does. And he got a real compliment from the supplier on how good a job he did welding. The supplier said, "That's the best welding I've ever seen in my entire life." So, uh, so, and then you have that captured on video on top of it. So it's, it's, uh, it's a fun, it's a fun tool and, and, and people like it, even the, we have never had an issue with the unions, but there are some rules around it, right? You, you can never use it. You, you can never use what's on the video against the employee. And we put that in right necessary if it's a, and, and if it's a safety issue, you know, I'll have a manager say, well, what you did was unsafe. And what I do is I turn to the manager and said, no, the process you set up for your employee is unsafe. <laughs> and you're the one that 
problem. You need to fix it, not the employee. So, so uh, you know, again, if we don't blame anybody for anything. You know, once you blame, you've lost the opportunity to get the root cause. So, yeah, it's all about it's all about improving the process. We say it's a process, not a person, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that's how we coach them going into the videos. And and you always get the jokes, right, of, of the royalties for the videos and, you know, <laughs> those kind of things. And, and, it, and you have some fun with it, right? But it, it's, really, it's really the best tool out there. But, but it does help to kind of have somebody walk you through it the first time, you know, of how to do that process. So uh, that, that would be my one caution. If you do it wrong or you use it against them, it, it, it can turn into a big mess. Yeah, definitely. Um, so last question here before we kind of wrap up. And I guess the last, last question will be, you know, how people can reach out to you and, and learn more. But you know, I want to ask your thoughts on, you know, following up these transformation projects using the basics model. Um, this big conversion from batch to flow is in a lot of ways a one-time event. And then there's the need for, ongoing continuous improvement and, uh, you know, having a lean culture or lean management styles. What, what are your uh, you know, kind of best practices or, or favorite ways of following up a project to not just ensure static sustainment, but creating more of a truly lean organization? It's mm, a really good question. So what, so one of the things on the follow-up side, one of the things I forgot to mention that's also different in this approach is the the basics model is not a workstation. It's not a station balance approach. Um, we use something called baton zones, uh, or we call it bumping. And, and it, it came from Ono, uh, and Ono talks about it in his books. And I've, I've actually taught 40-year veterans at the, the training facility in Japan, at Toyota in Japan, this, this baton zone or bumping technique. Um, and even they were resisting it until I told them it was Ono-san that, that came up. With but the, the bumping actually gets you to, uh, on assembly lines or, or even machining, gets you to pure one-piece flow with no whip between the operators. There's no combines in between the operators. So to us, if you have a, what used to be considered a world-class line was right combines in between the operators, two or three pieces, you know, and the rule was you, 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 once that combine square filled up, you had to stop. Um, in bumping, it eliminates all that. So we, we never use that loading operator loading chart. We, we never use that chart anymore. It's basically obsolete with this basics approach. And we've gone into companies after which is, this is what kind of triggered this. But we've gone into this company later, and I've had companies tell me, literally, we've been doing lean for 10 years. We're already world-class. I don't know why Joe brought you in here. You know, you're not going to be able to help us. And I said, okay, well, let's just go take a look. Well, I go in and I see sit-down workstations. I see Kanban's in between, point-of-use materials, all, all the stuff that, that was used to be taught as, you know, lean master school or, uh, in, in that approach. And we set up the line, we reset up the line to where it's standing and walking operations. And then we literally bump the, the operators, bump each other and hand off the products. And every time we set that up, we get anywhere from a 10 to a 40% improvement in productivity. It, it, it's phenomenal. Uh, I went through one company in, um, Orchard Park, uh, where we did 14 lines in 16 weeks and freed up a person on every line that we converted from station balancing to bumping. Uh, and this, again, this is 10 years later after they started lean. Um, and, and it was very successful and, and we, they were temporary employees. So they, in that case, they were laid off. The company did get the advantage of that but no full-time employees were laid off. So, um, so my experience with this is that the, the other reason I don't like the term event is that there's a conversation that there's an ending to it. And 
we all know lean never ends, right? It's, it's a journey and there's just, there's no ending to it. And I always think it's interesting. People say, oh, well, this is beyond lean. Well, in my mind, there's nothing beyond <laughs> lean because it's just always newest improvement. But uh, there, for sure, there is a leadership and coaching piece to this. Um, and uh, we're actually working on another book now called Shop Floor Management, where we kind of lay this out. But once you put the standard work in place for the operators, then you need the standard work for the leaders. Because part of the leader's job is to audit the standard work for the operators. And that leader standard work should go all the way up to the top. There is a, there's a leadership coaching piece with this as well. <clears throat> and, and all of us end up doing leader, you know, we all do leadership coaching and, and have done it, you know, you with value metrics and it just becomes part of the jobs as you go. But uh, the hard part is getting companies to realize that implementing lean, when, when you bring a consultant in or somebody that has done this for a long time, it really should be looked at as an investment, not a cost, because a good consultant will pay for themselves and sometimes multiple times over, over time, over time right? So, um, but we generally set up maintenance contracts with companies. I, I am in touch with every company I've ever worked with. I constantly stay in touch with all my clients and I'll send out an email every once in a while saying how things are going. And I'll, I'll get a one or two page email back in response. Um, so uh, it's important to have some type of follow-up component and to make sure that you're always working on improving. And that's one of the, the things where we've been working on with rapid improvements, also with leadership coaching, uh, Toyota Kata is another approach that they're all different types of approaches that you can use. You just have to figure out what works best for, for sustaining at your company. And my experience with it is, is that I insist that companies have this in their Hoshin plan or their strategic plan, that continuous improvement is one of the goals. And the, the real secret for that is that you have to have goals that people are bonused on, right, financially. And they have to be goals that are not easy to meet. So anybody can reduce, you know, can take out 10% out of a process, right, pretty much without thinking about it. But when you set the goal as I want you to reduce the cycle time by 50% year over year, now you've got something people, now you create a pull for those lean resources. Uh, otherwise, just the lean guys are always pushing. And when they come around, nobody wants to see them because that crocodile brain kicks in and says, oh, this guy's going to bring me extra work. I don't want, I don't want any part. So it, you have to create that pull. The same pull system that we talk about with lean really starts with the CEO and and it's a big problem with CEOs today because CEOs are focused on Wall Street and that quarterly report, and they're focused on growth, right? Operations generally takes a back seat unless there's some problem where they can't meet their growth targets because they can't get the parts out. So this this comes into that the change equation, right? Or having that compelling need to change, um, and. CEOs don't realize how much money they leave on the table every month because they're not pushing for this continuous improvement at the operations at the operations level. And that, by the way, includes materials and supply chain. Um, there's so much money. Uh, we we kind of talked about this earlier, right? They they won't bring the consultant in to help reduce the firefighting, but they'll throw thousands <laughs> of dollars out in the dumpster every day without even thinking about it, right? Yeah. So it's mindset change. How do you get that mindset change to occur where, where, you know, it doesn't take much. The CEO just needs to say, Hey, we want 50% improvement in all our processes this year. And if you don't get it, you don't get your bonus. Mm -hmm. Well, now guess what? That's going to get people's attention. And now you need the lean guys because otherwise what happens is the new, the new manager or the new president comes in and what's the first thing he does? He cuts the lean team because they're overhead. Yeah. So now they so all this money and cut the lean team out, but now there's no improvements going on. <laughs> yeah. 
that's I don't know if I answered your question. Well, I mean, you know, there's no easy answer to that question, but you know, the idea of, of having leaders who are engaged and, and, and not just sponsoring lean, but making it part of the strategic goals for the organization. That's uh, I, I agree. That's, that's really important. So just to wrap up here, um, where, you know, if people would like to learn more about the book, if they want to learn more about your work or if they want to work with you as a consultant, what are the best ways for people to find you or to reach out? So the, the best way to reach us is uh, uh, they can call me on my cell phone, um, which is uh, 410-984-1158. They can go to our website, which is www.biglean.com. Uh, the books are available on Amazon. They're also available from uh, uh, I for, crcpress.com, I think is the website now. Uh, and no, normally there's a 20% off coupon that you can get for those uh, for those as well. We're, we're working on getting them put on the website, um, which is a, a project that we have going on right now. But it, they're not there yet, but they, they will be. So uh, that's probably the the best way to, uh, to reach us. Okay. Well, thanks. Well, again, our guest today has been Charlie Protzman. He is most recently the author of the book, one of the co-authors um, with his son and one other co-author. Is that right, Charlie? That's correct. Um, yeah. The, the, the book is, again, Keen. is called, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, Bill Keen. Bill Keen. Um, the book is titled The Basics Lean Implementation Model. It's available now, and uh, I encourage you to go check it out. Charlie, uh, it's great, great talking to you. It's been a long time, and really glad to get, get you as a guest on the podcast today. Well, it's, it's truly an honor, Mark, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and it, it's great catching up. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.